since man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Actually, we're going to look at Matthew 9 into Matthew chapter 10. So if you turn to Matthew 10, we're going to start in Matthew 9, verse 35, and we're going to go to chapter 10, verse 15. Okay? So Matthew 9, 35 to Matthew 10, verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hardcover Bible in the pew in front of you. And if you turn to page 863, you'll find the beginning of our passage there on page 863. I'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. It's not too different than your own. The big numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When, the crowd, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is ab- abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household whenever you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But, if it. but if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more toler- tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May his word and the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, that's our prayer. That your word, the word of Christ, would dwell richly among us. That you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. That we would see Jesus Christ, the Lord of the harvest. The king of Israel. The king of the holy nation. The king of the church. The head of the church. The body. We pray that we would see him in his glory that we would hear and receive his words and that you would transform us and renovate our hearts. 
Soften the callous parts of our hearts. Unstop deaf ears and unblind blind eyes and blind spots in our eyes. And show us, Lord, encourage us in living for your glory and for your kingdom. Show us how to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And empower us to do, us, to do so. Encourage us to do so. And strengthen that habitual culture in our church family, we pray. For the good of our neighbors and for the sake of the nations and the unreached people groups. And most of all, for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's graduation season, and I don't know if you've attended any commencements uh, this graduation season, season so far or heard any speeches, but I have, and um, I'd like to congratulate one of our members graduated from high school, Matt, uh, Matthew Aquino. He's not here today, is he? No, Matt's not here, but Matt graduated, and uh, that's answered to prayer for his family and for our church family, so praise the Lord for answering that prayer. You know, in graduation speeches, you get a good barometer on the message of the culture because they want to address these high school graduates and college graduates to take on the world and to use their knowledge and this turning point in their lives to really do something significant in this world. And so the way that they encourage the things that they say gives us a good, it gives us a good, a good feel, really a good hearing of what the world is thinking in regard to, um, to life and life's purpose. And so, um, what they often say is, seize the day, you know, change the world, use your life the rest of your days to change the world. And you know what? Everyone wants to change the world. Nobody is satisfied with this world as it is. We might be content in the midst of this world, the peace that passes understanding, but it's not because our world isn't broken. It's not because there isn't any sin or any significant changes that need to happen in our cities, in our societies, in our homes, and in this world. This world desperately needs change. This world desperately needs God's grace. And so these graduation speeches seek to motivate. And so here's one. Let me quote one uh, commencement speech. Uh, one speaker said to the graduates, you will be in service to life and you will speak up. You will show up. You will stand up, you will sit in, you will volunteer, you will vote, you will shout, you will help, and you will radically transform whatever moment you're in. How's that for a speech? You will radically transform whatever moment you're in. The problem is that there are so many problems in this world, and there's so much suffering and expressions of brokenness in our cursed world due to sin that we start to ask ourselves, is there really any hope? I mean, can we, high school graduate, college graduate, graduate, individual Christian sitting here, uh, non-Christian sitting here, can we really change the world? Is there any point in trying? I mean, am I really making a difference? Can I really, with the remaining days and moments I have in my life, transform the moment and make a dent in this world for actual good that lasts? Cynicism is understandable. We get cynical and doubtful. What's the point? What's the use? I tried and, you know, it's, it's like writing your name on the beach right next to the shore. You write your name in the sand, you build a sand castle and, you know, in a few moments it's gone, right? It's erased by the waves and it's just back to plain sand with no writing at all. That's what it feels like. The good I do, the, the things I invest my life in, it, it's there temporarily if, if at all and then it goes away. What good does it have in the end? What's the point? Jesus felt the brokenness of this world, and Jesus felt overwhelmed as well. It's right here in your text. So look at Matthew 9, verse 35 again. I want you to see that Jesus looked out into the crowds and felt 
this overwhelming burden, this tidal wave of brokenness, and he felt, he felt the pain. Look at verse 35 again. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. This is great. He's going around, he's teaching, he's explaining God's word, he's preaching the good news that the kingdom of God, his sinner-saving, curse-reversing reign is sweeping through the world. He's healing every disease and sickness he can. And then, look at verse 36. But when he saw the crowds... What did he feel? He felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. The word uh, compassion, feeling compassion, he felt deeply sorry for them. He was deeply moved by them. Here he is preaching the kingdom. Remember last week we talked about the kingdom and how to see the kingdom? You can't seek the kingdom unless you see the kingdom. And I said, you should see the kingdom, the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God. You should see it reversing sickness. You see it reversing death. You see it reversing blindness. And you see it reversing demonization. Remember we talked about those four things last Sunday. And so Jesus is doing those things. And even in the midst of doing those things, he looks at the crowd and he just feels sorry for them. He feels deeply sorry, deeply moved. He feels their pain. The hopelessness, they're distressed, they're dejected, they're discouraged, they're dispirited, they're troubled and harassed, not just from their own sin. Yes, they're guilty, but also from the sins of others. The sins of others oppressing them. Your own sins oppress you, it's your fault, but the consequences of your sins harass and trouble and oppress you. So you got that pressure, and then you have the pressure of other people's sins. And then on top of that, you have demons in the world that are attacking and oppressing and you got the culture of the world not just individuals oppressing you but systems the way that we relate on a macro level those things start to press in on people as well and so Jesus looks at the crowds and he's broken he's he's feeling sorry for them he's feeling their pain they're like sheep without a shepherd Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want I have no lack is what it's saying Here, they don't have a shepherd. They lack everywhere. They do have want. They do want. They are unfulfilled. Jesus felt their pain. That's what happens when you share life with people, right? You spend time with people. You teach them. You preach. You try to gospelize them. You try to bear their burdens. You start to feel their pain. That's what ministry is, sharing life. Ministry is sharing life and sharing burdens. Jesus was sharing their burden. He understood their burden. They were pressured not only by the things I said, they were even pressured by, with sheep without a shepherd, they have no teachers, they have false teachers, they have people who don't understand the Bible, they have Pharisees and Sadducees and other rebel leaders who are misapplying the Bible and misunderstanding the Bible. Their parents, kings, prophets, priests, leaders, their culture failed them. The leaders used them. The prophets um, denounced the shepherds. God hates the false shepherds that were shepherding the people of Israel. If you read Ezekiel 23, I believe. What about today? What about the crowds today? The 1.3 million in Southeast Los Angeles, the 77,000 people in Bellflower, the 4 million in the city of LA and the 10 million in LA County. Are they distressed and dejected? Are they oppressed by their own sin and the sins of others and by demons and by false teachers? And false religions, you got false religions on the outside, then you got false teachers on the inside of the church. And false Christianities, right? 
and, and false Christians in the churches, mutually encouraging each other to continue in their false Christianity. Their so-called Christianity. These pressures even come up inside Bethany Baptist Church. And so Jesus feels a burden for them because he sees their distress. He sees our distress. He sees the distress of our neighbors and our region and our city. And you know, God has always had this burden. Why did God create the whole world? Why did God create the world? It wasn't because God needed us. He, didn't, he wasn't lonely. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, forever celebrating, rejoicing in one another for all eternity in perfect joy. It wasn't just perfect, though. It was overflowing. This joy was so overflowing that God wanted to create a universe to make image bearers ruling over this world to see his glory and to be invited into the Trinitarian party, the Trinitarian celebration of joy. That was God's plan from the beginning, to, to, to create image bearers, his people, who would share in his Trinitarian joy. That's the plan. And so, of course, Jesus is burdened because when he looks at the crowd, they're not enjoying this plan. They're not celebrating the Trinitarian goodness of God. They're actually cut off from this Trinitarian blessing because of their sin and then these other broken, sinful situations that are keeping them further away from Christ and his kingdom. And so, of course, Jesus feels a burden. So what does Christ do? If you want to meditate more on this burden, I encourage you to listen to Ross's sermon. Ross preached on this passage, but he focused more on this burden and this uh, compassion of Christ. You could listen to that. I actually emailed the whole church that sermon. You could just rewatch that if you want. We're going to move on, though, to, to what does Jesus do in response to this burden? When Jesus feels this kind of burden for this broken world and these broken people that he sees, what does he do? We see in this text what he does. His compassionate care has with it a compassionate strategy. So he's a strategy for compassionate care. So what does he do? He looks out at these crowds. He feels this burden. What does it say in the text? He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into the harvest, right? So he tells them, go pray. And then he summons the 12. Out of all those who follow him, he summons 12. And he says to these 12, I am giving you authority over demons and over sickness. So he authorizes 12 followers to go out. And then, not, then he does that and he names them and we have the, tw the 12 names which we read. And then after that, he tells them, don't go everywhere, go to the house of Israel, proclaim the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, go to people's house, greet them if they, if they, if they like you and if, if they're welcome to your message, leave your peace with them. If they don't like you, withdraw your peace from them because judgment is coming. That, that's the story. Okay, that's the, I just gave you an overview of the passage. Did you see Christ's strategy there? Jesus gives a strategy for this care. His strategy is pray, receive, and disciple. Here's the main goal. Okay, here's the main goal. If you're taking notes, and even if you're not, here's the main goal of the sermon. Because Christ cares, embrace his strategy of compassionate care so that the, his kingdom comes through you. Okay? Because Christ cares, you need to embrace his strategy of compassionate care so that the kingdom of God comes through you in this world. We talked about the kingdom last week. It's the sinner-saving, curse-reversing reign of God over you and through you, his people in this world. So you need to embrace this, this strategy of compassionate care. And the strategy is three words, pray, receive, and um, disciple, okay? Pray, receive, and disciple. We'll look at that in this text, and that will be our outline for the remainder of our time together. If you're gonna embrace this strategy of compassionate care, you need these three progressive components. They build on each other. 
First you pray, then you um, receive, and then you disciple. Okay? So let's look at the first one. Pray. What should we pray for? Look at Matthew 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are what? The workers are few. So here's the prayer request. Therefore, because the workers are few and because the, abundance, uh, the harvest is abundant, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to do what? To send out workers into his harvest. There's a prayer request. More workers. What is a worker? A worker is someone who's working in the harvest field. A worker, what Jesus means by it, is someone who works in God's harvest, of God harvesting people through love, through gospelizing, through discipleship through acts of love so that, so that the people, the harvest field, so that they hear the word, so that they repent and trust in Christ, so that they convert and so that they commit to Christ and his people and so that they continue on in growing and going themselves as workers, okay? So what is a worker? A worker is someone who ministers to people so that they hear the word, so that they convert to Christ, so that they commit to Christ and his people, so that they continue to grow in Christ and so that they continue to go with Christ, in making more disciples. That's what a worker does, okay? Jesus is saying, pray for more of those people in Bellflower, in Southeast Los Angeles, among the nations. Pray for more of these types of workers, these types of people. Why? It says in verse 37, because the harvest is what? The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is abundant. There are 30, uh, yeah, the harvest is abundant. In Southeast L.A., in our region of Los Angeles County, we have 1.5 million people, 1.4, 1.5 million people. There's a lot of people. Now, not all of them are ready to repent. Not all of them will repent, but some of them will. And are a lot of them feeling their crisis? Yeah, not all of them are, but some of them are, right? A lot of them are. And when they are, do these people who feel their crisis and feel their need and would be open to the gospel, do they have Christian friends who are loving them regularly and gospelizing them? Not a lot of them. We need more workers. We need more workers because the harvest is plentiful. Not only is the harvest abundant, but the second reason why we need more workers is because the workers are what? The workers are few. You know what? Not only are the workers few because, um, here, well, let me make a statement that might jar you at first. Even Jesus walking on this earth is not enough. Even Jesus as a worker on earth is too few workers. Remember Jesus when he left? He said, it's better that I leave than, than I stay. They're like, no, what is better than having Jesus walk with you on this earth? Jesus is saying, me in heaven. They're like, no, it's better to have you here. You could disciple us. All these debates, I mean, wouldn't it be great to have Jesus walking on earth so that when we debate things, we can just ask him who, who's right and who's wrong, right? Which church is right? Which church is wrong? Which claiming Christianity is right? Wouldn't it be great to have Jesus here? It would be great, right? We think it would be better, but Jesus says it's not better. It's better that I'm up there. Why? Because when Jesus ascends to heaven, he sits on his throne 40 days after his, his resurrection, he ascends to his throne. 10 days later, who does he send down? The Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit lives in who? The people. And now you got workers that can go everywhere. Jesus says it's better. Even with Jesus on earth, there are too few workers. We need to pray for more workers because the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. So we need to pray for workers because of the opportunity, the plentiful harvest. We need to pray for workers because we have few workers, because of the need. And the third reason why we need to pray for workers, not only because of the opportunity and the need, but because of God's ability. Who are we supposed to pray to? 
Pray to who? According to verse 38. Pray to who? He doesn't just say pray to God, pray to the Father. He could have said that. But he calls God what? The Lord of the harvest. In other words, God's in control of the harvest. He will save people. He will convert people. He will have them commit to Christ in his church, in baptism, in church membership. He will have them grow. And he will equip them to go and disciple people. The Lord of the harvest answers prayers. The question isn't whether God, the Lord of the harvest, wants to answer prayers. The question is whether we are praying. That's the command, right? The question isn't God's ability. The question isn't God's willingness. The question isn't God's plan. The challenge is for us to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out more workers into the harvest. You know, in Acts 16, verses 14 and 15, we have a picture here of the Lord of the harvest. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. It says, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening, listening to Paul as Paul's gospelizing there at the river. It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying after she and her household were baptized. Who opened her heart? The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul. Paul is a worker in the harvest field, just gospelizing to a bunch of women there at the river. And the Lord opened her heart. That's what God does. The harvest is plentiful. The Lord of the harvest opens hearts for the harvest. The workers need to get there to gospelize and love. Not only do we have a harvest among, harvest working is not only for conversion. That's what we primarily have in mind usually. Harvest working is even for continuing to equip the workers for the harvest. So Hebrews tells us to watch, Hebrews 3 tells us to watch out, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, watch out brothers and sisters so that there won't be an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily. This is why we do church discipline and why we rebuke each other to keep each other from falling out of the harvest, right? Didn't Peter, didn't Paul do that to Peter? Remember Peter in, in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 15? Peter was given over to partiality and really ethnic prejudice, ethnocentrism, racism. Peter was, was, was falling out of line with the gospel and Paul rebuked him. That's part of keeping the harvest worker from falling away from Christ. We need workers discipling non-Christians and Christians. That's the prayer. So application here, Christian, what's the, what, we, what is God telling you to do? Pray for what? Pray for workers. Pray for more Christians to join gospel preaching churches and pray for those churches to train and equip and deploy their members to go out and gospelize together and bless their neighbors. Pray for more churches to be planted and revitalized because the churches are the, that's the, the matrix, that's the, that's the center hub where disciples are equipped for working in the field. Church family, what does this mean for us as a church, Bethany Baptist Church? This means we need to pray for workers as a church. Sunday nights, come on Sunday night and pray for workers with us. Pray for the mission. During the long, long pastoral prayer, right? Praying for so many nations and churches and what's going on in our church and the government. Every Sunday, these long, extra long prayers where you're sleepy, stand up in the back and focus to pray. And pray for workers. Pray for workers. Pray with us together. Don't, don't tune out. We're not wasting time when we take time as a church to pray in our gathering. We are praying because Christ calls us to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Children, parents, spouses, singles, workers, 
Students, retirees, here's good news. Jesus cares for you, and he sends workers to serve you. Children, Jesus sends workers to serve you. Parents, Jesus sends workers to serve you. Spouses, singles, if you're at work, you're at school, you're retired, Jesus sends workers to serve you. That's the good news. God is not inactive. God cares. God works, and he sends workers. Because Christ cares, embraces strategy of compassionate care so that his sinner-saving, curse-reversing reign comes through you. And the three ways you embrace this strategy, number one, is by embracing or by praying for workers. Number two, let's go to number two now. Chapter 10, verses one through four. Secondly, chapter 10, verses one through four. It says here in verse one, summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them what? Authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Okay, so what does Jesus give to people? He gives what? Authority. So that's the gift. Authority. Who's the giver? Jesus. And the gift is authority. And who are the gifted? Who are the ones who receive this gift? The 12 apostles. Okay, so let's, let's think about these three things one at a time. The giver, the gift, and the gifted. First, let's look at the giver. You guys said it right. Jesus is the giver, right? It says here in verse 1, summoning his 12 disciples. That's Jesus who summons them. So he summons his disciples. And he gives them authority. He gave them authority. Who is Jesus according to the book of Matthew? What do you know? We've been through now ten, nine chapters of Matthew. What do we know about Jesus? Somebody shout out something we know about Jesus. He's the what? King. King of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the son of David. That's why we know he's the king. What else? Healer. What's that? The word. Yes, from John 1.1, we know Jesus is the word. What, teacher, someone said teacher, prophet. Yeah, he, he's teaching with authority. He has authority over demons. I mean, just think about this. What, the, the person who gives authority. He's the son of David, the king, who has promised a descendant who will always reign on the throne. He's the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the blessing to bless all the nations. He's the one in Matthew five seventeen. I did not come to abolish the law and prophets. I came to what? Fulfill them. He's the one who fulfills scripture. He's the one who teaches with authority. He's the one who has power over death, over sickness, over blindness, and over demons, as we learned last week. In Matthew 1.21, he is Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. When he hangs on the cross, there's a sign over him, the king of the Jews. He's the one who in Matthew 28.18 says, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the one with all authority. By virtue, by virtue of his death and his resurrection. Jesus is the giver of authority. He is the only one with the authority to give authority to other people. Okay? Now, what is the gift he gives in verse 1 again? It's authority. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive, out, to drive them out to heal every disease and sickness. So he gives them authority to drive out sickness and demonization. So they have authority. Um, they, could, they could command a demon to leave, and demons will leave. They can command sicknesses to go away, and sicknesses go away. They have that authority from Jesus. They do this regularly um, in their lives and in their ministry. This authority gets to the point where it ends up where um, not only do they heal diseases and cast out demons, they, um, 
They're able, it says, and we're going to look at this as we go on in the passage. They, they have the authority to leave God's peace or withdraw God's peace. So if people accept them, they could leave God's peace in the household. If people reject them, oh, I'm taking God's peace with me. You don't get God's peace. Wow, that's a lot of authority, right? That you get to determine whether God's peace stays on a family or not. That's a lot of authority. So he gives them authority to give and take God's peace. And he gives them authority over demons and sickness. And who, who uh, so that's the, the gift, the authority. And what, who are the gifted? You guys said already, who are the gifted? The 12 apostles. And you have their name right there. Any, can anyone name them without looking? I can't even. I try to memorize them every so often. I always forget. I'm like, ah. Oh. So I can't do it. But yeah, so um, let me just read them here again. The 12 apostles. Simon, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, another James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. The 12 apostles. These are the ones given unique apostolic authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom, to bind and loose for the kingdom of God, to be the personal witnesses of Jesus Christ, to have authority over um, demons and sickness. Not all apostles wrote scripture. Do you know that? Not all 12 apostles wrote books in the New Testament. Actually, a minority of the apostles wrote books in the New Testament. So that's not a characteristic of being one of the 12 apostles. So they were unique in a lot of ways. What did this ministry look like? Look at Acts chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Or you could just listen. I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You have Peter here. Here's what it looks like. I read this in my devotions earlier this week. So Peter, there's this, there's this um, man begging at the temple gate. In verse 5, Peter turned to them, expect, uh, uh, he turned to them expecting to get something from them, this man who's begging, in verse 6. But Peter said to him, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, what does he say? Get up and what? Get up and walk. And so this man gets up and walks. And then go back, going down to verse 11, while, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them. This is the healing. This is what, what Jesus told them to do in, in um, Matthew 10. Um, they ran toward him in what is called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us? as though we had made him walk by our own power and godliness. Now notice Peter doesn't say, ah, look at my power. That's right, recognize who I am. Do you know my name? I'm Peter. I'm Simon Peter, brother of Andrew. He doesn't say that. He says, this doesn't come from us. It's not from our power or godliness. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have him murdered, uh, have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the, so the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And then Peter says in verse 20, 19, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that the seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who, he has, appoint, who has been appointed for you as Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things. What do we see here? Healing power, right? But not just physical healing. He says it came through faith in who? Through faith in Jesus. He said, I don't have any uh, gold or silver. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And so when people ask for the explanation, his explanation is who? Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Trusting in Jesus. 
Here's a picture of healing for the mission. The mission isn't to heal. The mission isn't to relieve the poor. The mission is to get people into the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom. Now you do those things. He heals and serves and helps the poor, but the mission is the, the, the ultimate goal, the point of it is to proclaim the kingdom that people might enter. So these 12 apostles received this unique authority to heal, cast out demons, and gospelize. Who has this authority today? Who are the workers today? Who receives this authority from the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll tell you a wrong answer. The answer is not pastors only. That is not the answer. It's not denominational leaders or bishops or archbishops or the clergy. Who today in Bellflower has received authority from the Lord for this mission? I'll tell you who. David Apgar and Alexa Aquino and Matthew Aquino and Lupe Aranda and Jim and Ken and Cindy and Irwin and Janice and John and Autumn and Linda and Justin and Ben and Ruby and Daryl and EJ and Carrie and Connie and Guillermo and Brenda and Darren and Hannah and Brian and Jennifer and Ivan and Yesenia and John and Inette and Jean and Aaron and Crystal and Andrew and Betty and Cameron and John and Tia. Patty, Ross, Calvin, Jennifer, Edith, Lance, Renee, Marion, Angela, Sally, Brian, John, Linda, Jose, Alyssa, Victor, Jerry, Terry, Jonathan, Royce, Sally, Marcelino, Kim, Jimmy, Barbara, Hannah, Ruby, Aaron, Pam, PJ, Francis, Ray, Yoli, Yek, Reese, Chris, Bethany, Lena, Merle, Joe Helen, Jalon, and Amber. They have received this authority, along with Peter, Andrew, John, James, and these 12. These are the workers. These are the workers. You have received authority from the Lord Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority belongs to Jesus, and he gives it to his church. He gives it to his people, his church, as a church. And then as the church gathered and as the church scattered, you have this authority. Do we have authority to cast out sickness? Well, you know, I try, but nothing happens, you know. Maybe. But, and so, so, no, we can't do that, perhaps. Most of us can't. Maybe all of us can't. But we can't help people who are sick, can't we? And that's why churches have always historically been the ones who started hospitals. And we can't cast out demons just with a simple word most of the time. But can we preach Christ and call people to repent from sin and apply the gospel to their lives so that the more they repent from sin, the less power demons have over them because they're being demonized and influenced by demons and tricked? Do we not have the truth? And won't the truth set them free? Don't we have the truth? All these people I just named, don't you have the truth? Authority from Jesus has been given to you, to you, to make disciples. You are the ones who receive authority. So we pray for workers, and then we realize we are the workers that have received this authority. So let us not sit idly by, waiting for someone else to do the work. You are the worker, Bethany Baptist Church member. And if you're a member from another church, then that church, by, you, by virtue of your membership to that gospel preaching church, you are also authorized. 
So if you're a Christian here from another church, you too are authorized by God through the local church that exercises the keys so that you would gospelize and disciple. So if you're a Christian, you need to have a sense. You need to recognize that you are, that you are authorized by the Lord Jesus for this disciple-making ministry of compassionate care. You need to recognize, church family, that God has given us authority to gospelize together, to disciple together, to exercise the keys together. We are going to consider three people today in our members meeting who might join our church. We are going to do this together, incommunicate members. If we have to excommunicate an unrepentant member, we do that together. But that is because Christ has given us authority to do this. He's given you authority to do this. So plan on coming at 3.30. That's one of the things we do because of the authority Christ has given us. So are we able to permanently heal people? Physically? Yes. Are we able to temporarily heal them? Not always. Remember that? I said this last week. Remember, even Peter, when he heals this man who, who is able to walk, eventually he's going to die anyways, right? So, so all of the healing that was done, all of the miraculous healing was all temporary because it was pointing to the permanent healing. All the, the casting out of demons was for the permanent freedom from demons. We can't do the temporary stuff as miraculously, as instantaneous as, they, as them, but we can do the permanent one. And that's the more important one, right? That's what we are authorized to do. So brothers, sisters, receive this authority. Walk around with a sense that you are authorized by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Bellflower, in Southeast LA. You are the workers here, sent by Jesus himself. If you're not a Christian, I want you to realize that when Christians come to you with the gospel, we are coming to you with the authority of Jesus himself. It's not just our opinion. It's not just our bright idea. It's not just the fact that my parents were Christian, so I'm a Christian. No, we are coming to you with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. So when you receive us and our word, you receive who? Jesus. And when you reject our message of the gospel, you reject Jesus. Because it's not our message. It's not our authority. It's his given to us and through us to you. Here's the good news. God does not leave us without human authority. He authorizes people for his good. Bellflower is not without workers. Praise God. He has authorized workers in this area. And all the members of our church are authorized for such work. Okay, so to recap, what's the main goal again? The main goal is because Christ cares, embrace his strategy of compassionate care so that the kingdom comes through you, through you, okay? And the way we do this, first we pray, God, please send out workers into the harvest. Second, we receive the authority because we are those workers if you're a Christian here. So we pray for workers. We receive authority ourselves. We receive more workers as we receive more members into our church. We receive. And lastly, we disciple. We disciple our neighbors and the nations. So we disciple. Let's look at the last, last 11 verses here. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. Last 11 verses here, Matthew 10, verses 5 to 15, we're called here to disciple. Now, I, now the word disciple is not here, disciple-making. I'm getting this word from Matthew 28, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and disciple all nations. Because this is not, chapter 10 is not commanded to us. Chapter 28 is commanded to us. Chapter 10 is not. And we know it's not because of where Jesus tells them to go. Just go only to the house of Israel. Well, we're not going to the house of Israel. We're going to southeast Los Angeles. So, um, so this doesn't apply directly to us, but it does in principle. 
So disciple your neighbors in the nations. That's the Great Commission. That's their life commission. That's our commission, to go disciple. I call this, um, we call this discipling. Now, there's three parts to discipling here in this passage, okay? In these 11 verses, you have three parts to discipling, three components. You ready? Number one, go, verses five and six. Number two, gospelize, that's verse seven. And number three, bless, that's verses eight through 15. If you're gonna disciple, you've received this authority and now you're to disciple, there's three components to it. You go, you gospelize, and you bless. You go, you gospelize, and you bless. You go, you gospelize, and you bless. That's what we do as disciple makers. That's our, that's, our, that's our method. That's the components to the task. Let's look at these one at a time. Go, then gospelize, then, then bless. First of all, go. Look at verse, uh, verses five and six. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take, the, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, the nations, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is Jesus being racist here? No, Jesus is not racist, not sinfully racist. Is Jesus prioritizing a particular ethnic people group here, yes or no? Yes, he is. It's not because he doesn't care about the nations. It's because he has a specific... Remember, you're reading a story, and stories have time to it. There's, there's twists and turns, plot lines, plot twists in the story. At this point, the mission is not to go to the nations. He is presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah. When they reject him, he will be crucified on a cross he'll be buried for three days and on the third day he will rise and when he rises then he'll tell his disciples all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go and disciple all what all nations not just israel certainly include israel but not just israel now so we're listening to this in 2019 if you're listening to this in 32 AD, let's say Jesus died in 33 AD, that's probably the best guess, 30 or 33. If Jesus died in 33 AD and you got this message in 32 AD, you're only supposed to go to Israel. But if you're after Christ's resurrection, 33 AD, 2019, you're not just going to Israel. You're going to all nations. You're going to all, all regions here in Southeast LA and to the unreached people groups of the world. All right, so go. Go, don't stay within your Christian bubbles. Don't only talk to Christians. Go, get out, meet other non-Christians, talk to them, initiate conversations, explain things to them, invite them to think about the things of God with you. Go, go. Okay, so you're gonna go to them. And when you go, two more things. Second, gospelize, and then third, bless. So let's look at gospelize, verse seven. When you go, gospelize. Verse seven says, as you go, what's the command? Proclaim, preach. Preach. Who's supposed to preach? Here, the, the 12 apostles. But if the Great Commission is given to all of us, who's supposed to preach? All of us. So who are preach, who's a preacher? Every what? Every Christian. Every Christian's a preacher, okay? Every Christian is a preacher. And what are we supposed to proclaim? What are they supposed to proclaim? Look at the, their message is a little bit different than ours, at least because of the time. The kingdom of heaven has what? Come near. That's a little bit different than us. Because this is 32 or 31 AD, probably. Their message is the kingdom has come near. It's almost here. It's almost here. For us, we say, in a sense, the kingdom has come. Because Christ has come, he died, and he rose. And all authority is given to him. At the same time, we are saying it's still near because Christ is still spreading the sinner-saving curse-reversing rule. And in the end, when Christ returns, the kingdom will finally fully come. So it has come, it is coming, and it will come. But in this point, at this point in the story, it hasn't come yet. He hasn't died and rose to secure that kingdom. Okay? And to take his throne in heaven. So here, it has come near, but it's not quite here yet. 
But the message is they're still preaching the good news of the kingdom, the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God through his Messiah, Jesus. They're proclaiming that message. And so what does that mean for us? We too need to gospelize. We need to, we need to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus. And who do we gospelize? Everyone. Non-Christians and, and Christians, right? What does it mean to gospelize? Let me give you my definition. To gospelize is to proclaim and apply the goodness of God in Christ. That's my little phrase for the gospel. To proclaim and apply the goodness of God in Christ. Aiming for faith, converting non-Christians and growing Christians. Okay? Every time you gospelize, you're proclaiming the goodness of God in Christ to people. So if I'm here talking to you, I'm talking to a Christian after, after this service, I'm going to proclaim the goodness of, goodness of God in Christ to you with my aim that you would have faith in Christ. Fresh faith to grow. If I'm talking to a non-Christian who doesn't have any faith, I'm going to preach to him the same gospel, the same Jesus, the same kingdom, and I'm going to call him to faith, but it's going to be converting faith initially, right? So before you're a Christian, you have converting faith, and then as a Christian, you keep getting gospelized and you keep growing in edifying or uh, sanctifying faith, if you like, transforming faith. But gospelizing is proclaiming Christ and the Christ the King so what is it to proclaim? It's to declare, to make known. Not to debate endlessly. That's good news, right? You don't have to debate endlessly with people. You don't have to beat someone into agreement. You don't have to manipulate people. It's just clearly explaining and proclaiming the, the message of God, that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Clearly explain what that means. They can take it or leave it. Um, but don't, don't feel like you have to debate and force them into agreement. The Lord is the Lord of the harvest, right? He'll open hearts. That's not your job. Your job is to get the message to them and love them. Okay, so what is the kingdom message now? I told you the kingdom message then is the kingdom is coming. Our kingdom message now is the kingdom has come because the incarnation, Christ came into the world to save sinners. The crucifixion, Christ died on the cross for sinners. And Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. He rules and reigns. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. That's our message, that Christ has come, he saves sinners, and he reigns now, and he's calling sinners to repent because he's coming again for judgment. That's the message we make known to non-Christians. And then lastly, so go, gospelize, and the last part of discipling is what? Blessed. Now, there's a large part of the passage here, um, and there's three things here about blessing. I'm just going to break this down for you verse-wise. First, bless tangibly. Look at verse 8, bless tangibly. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. So bless tangibly. What that means is when you serve others, do it in tangible ways. Heal the sick. Help them with their sickness. If they're, if they're demonized and they're being influenced by demons, give them truth. Give them encouragement. Give them things to think about. Let them know that they're not alone, that they don't have to face demons alone, that you'll walk by their side and you'll be their friend and that you'll care for them. That's what it means. So to tangibly do good to them. Meet temporary needs for eternal purposes. And don't stop meeting needs just because they reject the gospel. If they don't become a Christian now on your time, that doesn't mean, oh, well, if you're not going to come to Jesus, I'm not going to love you anymore. That's not what he's saying here. Heal the sick even if they don't repent and believe in Christ. Help them. Love them. So do it tangibly, not just in your words. Secondly, do it freely. The end of verse 8 and going to 9 and 10, he says, as you have freely or freely, freely you receive, so therefore freely what? Give. Did God charge you to become a Christian? Did, he, did, he, did you have to pay something or jump through several hoops before you became a Christian? No. He gave you the gospel freely. 
He gave you faith. He gave you repentance. He gave to you freely. He gave you eternal life freely. You've received freely, so what should you do? Give what? Give freely. Be generous. Be overly generous. Give freely. You, you can never outgive what God has given you, right? You'll never give more than God's given you. And, and giving, actually, God loves a cheerful giver, and you are more blessed when you give than when you what? When you receive. God's actually just calling you to, to be generous, so give freely. And verse 9 and 10 fills out this idea of freely giving. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't even do that. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his what? Food. What is Jesus saying here? Don't worry. Don't, don't save up so much money that you got to make sure that all your ducks are in a row before you go out on this discipling, risky mission. What is he saying? Just go. Just do it. Just obey. Just, in other words, just seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be what? Add to you. Don't worry about it yet. Don't make sure there's enough in the savings and there's enough food and there's enough that a worker is worthy of his wages. You honor me, Jesus is saying. You go and disciple people. You go love and you serve them and, I, and God will provide your, your, your needs. He'll provide your food. He'll provide your rent or your mortgage. He'll, he'll provide it for you. That's not up to you. Don't worry about that. You go and you disciple. Don't worry about the money bags and do you have enough food in your pocket? Just go, go love people and serve people and God will provide because a worker is worthy of his food. We're praying for more workers. We are the workers who've received that authority and we work and we are worthy of our food as we love people with the gospel. So, so, give, so bless tangibly, bless freely, and lastly here, bless discerningly. Bless, or bless discerningly. What I mean by discerningly here is we're going to have to discern whether people are receiving it or not. And when we meet people, we're kind of like this big fork in the road. You're just kind of driving this wedge through bellflower. Every time you meet someone, you're driving a wedge at them. And they have to decide for Christ or against Christ. That's kind of the way we, we just kind of walk around with this built-in wedge that every time we encounter somebody, we're just making them decide. You're either on this side of me or on this side of me because I'm coming right through. Right? And so you're dis- we're, we're blessing people discerningly um, according to this passage. So look at verse 11. So greet. Um, and, and when you're going to do this um, discerningly, this is, I find this freeing. So let me give you um, just what Jesus does here. He says, greet people and check out, just, just greet people and see if they're receptive. And if they're receptive, leave your peace. If they're not receptive, don't leave your peace. Isn't that freeing? Jesus doesn't say, it's up to you to convince them to receive you. It's not up to you. Just greet them, love them, speak to them, and then just see how they respond. That's what verse 11 and 12 says. So look at verse 11. When you enter a town or village, find out who is worthy, stay there until you leave. Greet, greet a household when you enter it. So there it is, just greet. Just go there. Hey, I'm PJ. I love Jesus and I want to make Jesus known to you. Are you okay with that? No, I don't want to talk to you. Okay, thank you. You move on. Oh yeah, I'd like to hear more about this Jesus. Great, you keep talking. And you find, the more you, the more you, you know, you, 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 you're, so you're, you're, you're not sort of subtly trying to weave it in, sneak, sneak Jesus into the conversation. You know, it's like, oh man, I didn't know my friend was a Christian, but now I know, and now I know he wants to convert me. Like you just sneak it in where they don't realize it. No, just be upfront with it. I love Jesus. I love you. I want you to love Jesus. I have a message for you from Jesus. Would you like to hear the message of Jesus? So be upfront. And then if they're receptive, great. And so if they're receptive, what do you do? It says here in verse 13, verse 12, or 13, yeah. If the household is worthy, let your what? Let your peace be on it. So there it is. If, they, if they're receptive to you, if they welcome you, leave your peace. Leave the kingdom peace. Leave the gospel peace with them. 
because you're going to explain the gospel to them and leave your peace. But, verse, verse uh, 14, or 13 still, but if it is unworthy, if the household is unworthy, what should you do? Let your peace what? Return to you. He goes on, if anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, what should you do? Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Now that's visible, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine that? Like, um, imagine like a, a Jehovah's Witness coming to your door, knocking on your door. You enter it. They, they, they try to share the gospel with you. And then you say, you know, no, I don't believe in that. Jesus is God. You don't believe Jesus is God. You're a false teacher. And they say, okay. And they walk away and they go like this. You know, start shaking their feet as they walk away. You'd be like, what? You know, it almost seems like an insult, right? Like, why would you do that? But Jesus is telling you to do that, to shake the dust off your feet as you leave. What does that mean? That means, now here's, here's, the, here, here's, um, here's the challenge for you, brothers and sisters. So first the encouragement, then the challenge. Don't force the issue with people. Just bring it up. If they don't want to talk about it, be peaceful. Just to r- remove your gospel peace. And continue to be <clears throat> civil. If they want to talk, talk. If they reject the gospel at the end, shake your feet, uh, shake the dust off your feet. Now, I'm not saying literally do that. But what I am saying is, here's the challenge now. You have to clearly let them know where they stand with God when you leave. That's the hard part. Because now you got to say, listen, you're not trusting Jesus yet. You're still separated from Jesus and under his judgment. You have to be able to say that when you leave the conversation. That's a challenge. But Jesus doesn't call us to easy working. It's not an easy job, right? We take up our cross and follow him. We deny ourselves. So we have to communicate to them, listen, if you don't want this Jesus that I'm proclaiming, you are, you are still in your sins. You're still in judgment. And God has not forgiven you. And on judgment day, you will be damned. You don't have to say all those words, but something like that. You have to clearly communicate where they stand with Jesus at the end of the conversation. That's equivalent to shaking the dust off your feet. You're letting them know, I love you, but judgment still remains on you. I'll give you one illustration. Uh, Carrie and I, just a few, um, in, in the recent past, we had a conversation with a non-Christian friend where, we, where this person was saying, oh, I said, are you ready to follow Jesus? He said, I'm not ready to follow Jesus. Okay, so you're not ready to follow Jesus. No, I'm not saying I'm not ready to follow Jesus. I'm just saying I'm not ready to follow Jesus. And I was saying, well, you, you're, you think, he's like, I'm, I'm right in the middle. And I said, there is no middle. If you're not ready to follow Jesus, then you're not ready to follow Jesus. You need to know that you're still in your sin. You're still rejecting Jesus right now. If you're not ready to follow him, and I said to this friend, you need to say that out loud to yourself because you don't want to admit it. And if you don't admit it, the demons are influencing and blinding you to make you think you're okay with God because you think you're in the middle and you're actually not in the middle. You actually oppose Jesus Christ and he opposes you and you're actually on the demon's side. But you have to, and so we just have to clarify it. You, you have to clarify it for the person. You can't just say at the end of it, oh, well, yeah, you're in the middle. I hope you repent and believe. No, you're not in the middle. So Jesus says in John three thirty six, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. It remains on him. You're either under wrath or not under wrath. There is no middle ground. And it's our job to shake the dust of our feet and, and say and clarify, listen, you are still apart from Christ in your sins. Okay, so we go, we gospelize, and we bless. And as we bless, we bless tangibly, we bless freely, and we bless discerningly. We discern whether they are or are not for Jesus, and we communicate that clearly. 
If you're not a Christian, you might say, well, this is why I can't be a Christian because you Christians are so arrogant. You think you guys are the only ones with the right way. Only through Jesus, and if I don't have Jesus, I'm going to hell. Really? I mean, there's so many religions, there's so many views, there's so many cultures, there's so many perspectives. Who are you to tell me that you guys have the right way? All religions should be equal, and all religions are correct. No one is ultimately wrong. No one has the right to say that anyone's wrong. And ultimately, your attitude is a threat to world peace, Christians. If that's what you're thinking, as an, and you're not Christian, first of all, thank you for coming here. Let me just say something to you. When I say there's no middle ground, you might say, well, all, the, all religions are equally true. There, or if you say there is no religion that's wrong. No other religion gets to say another religion is wrong. Guess what you're saying about Jesus and Christianity? That Christianity is wrong. That it's wrong. If Christianity is saying it's the only way, and you're saying that there's a lot of ways, then you're saying Christianity's claim that it's the only way is not true, right? You, you, can't, you can't say uh, all religions are right when different religions say that not all religions are right. You're, you're contradicting that religion, right? Does that make sense? In other words, um, you have the right to believe all religions are right, but that's an exclusive view. You're actually excluding true Christianity. And you have the right to do that, but you have to answer to God in judgment day for it. But don't think because you think Jesus is okay and that he's one of many valid ways that you're okay with Jesus. You're not. You need to realize that. You've chosen against Jesus. You have the right to choose that, but you also have to face him on judgment day. And so our prayer is that you wouldn't because our gospel message to you, if you're not a Christian, is God made you, God is holy, we're sinners, we're all going to hell, not just non-Christians, all Christians deserve to go to hell. Everyone deserves to go to hell, including us, but God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead so that if we repent from our sins and trust in Jesus, we will be forgiven and saved. And that offer is for you as well. If you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. Okay, so if you're a Christian, here's the application for you. Go gospelize and disciple. Go bless your neighbors. Go love them. Go, church family, let's go together. Let's send each other as a discipling community. Let's share life and share Jesus. Realize that every Sunday we have a send-off at the end of our service. That's intentional. We are saying we are being sent this week back into the world because Christ is sending us with his authority. So send each other off thoughtfully at the end of our services. If you're discouraged in your Christian life right now as a disciple maker, share your burdens with others so that they can help you follow Jesus. If you're feeling weak, have others walk behind you and alongside you and, 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 and know about your weakness that they might help you. If you're stumbling, stumbling or stubborn in your sin right now and you feel trapped by it, and, um, and maybe you feel like, I just, I'm not a good disciple maker. I don't care about others. I'm disengaged. Ask members to pray for you. If you're stuck in a sin, ask members to pray for you. The good news is that God is freeing his people and reversing the curse. He's reversing distress. He's reversing dispiritedness. He's reversing discouragement. He's reversing sinful oppression. He's reversing the curse through his people going out and discipling people. That's what he's doing. So pray for workers receive his authority, and disciple your neighbors and the nations. Have you done that well? Have you been doing a good job of praying for workers? Have you been doing a good job of receiving his authority? And have you been doing a good job of discipling your neighbors and loving them and gospelizing them and blessing them? Or have you failed lately? We have failed. And you know, Jesus tells two parables about this failure. One is the parable of the wicked tenants. You might remember that parable. He's, you know, God, or the, the master puts this group in charge of his, his, his vineyard. He leaves, and they don't pay their rent, 
Instead, they take advantage of it, and they abuse the vineyard, and then they end up killing the son. And then Jesus says, what do you think the owner is going to do when he comes? Oh, he's going to kill them. He's going to kill them and judge them. And then Jesus tells this other parable about the talents. And this is like a lot of us Christians, where some receive five talents, some receive two talents, some receive one talent. And he says, I'm going to come back, I'm going to want a return on the investment that I gave you. So the one who had five, he, he made five more, and he gave that to the Lord. Uh, the one who had two talents made two more, and he gave that to the Lord. And then there was the one who had one talent. What did he do? He saved it. He buried it. And he came back and said, Lord, I didn't want to lose it. Here it is. Here's your one talent. And the Lord says, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. And he throws him into the fire. Throws him into judgment. For those of us who have not faithfully prayed for workers, we have not faithfully received this authority, we have not faithfully discipled our neighbors, guess what we deserve? Judgment and hell. But praise be to God that Christ has been the faithful prayer warrior who prays for workers, doesn't he? He prays for workers all the time. He's praying and interceding for us even now. Christ is the one who has received this authority, and yet he was treated on the cross as if he didn't have that authority. He was crucified for us and killed as if he was a fake authority, a fake king of the Jews, when he really was the one with authority. And Christ did come to disciple and bless, and yet again he was rejected even by his own friends and disciples as he sought to disciple the neighbors and the nations. Christ is the perfect discipler, and he did it for us. So now that he can empower us to do it ourselves. Praise God that we have such a sweet Savior who takes that fire that we deserve for sitting on our talents. Christ takes that on the cross. For the workers who don't, who don't take care of the, the vineyard, Christ takes that judgment. And so we praise and rest in him. He was the one who was judged. So my final call to you, brothers and sisters, is recognize the authority Christ gave you as a worker recognize that authority. If you don't recognize that authority, you'll be distracted in your life, going after other things. You'll be discouraged in your Christian life, and you'll be doubting whether you really are a Christian and whether you're really making a difference in this world. You just throw your hands up and say, I'm not making a difference. But if you realize that you're authorized by Christ, if you're cognizant of this fact, you'll be encouraged by his grace and his presence. You'll know that God has called you to make a permanent difference in this world, even if you can't see that difference now. And you'll see the moments that he sends you to. Remember that graduation speech? I think it's true for Christians. Christians, you will radically transform whatever moment you're in. You will. Why? Because Christ is with you. And Christ authorized you to disciple. May King Jesus, may his sinner-saving, curse-reversing reign remain on us and move through us for his glory. Brothers and sisters, we don't need a graduation to hear this message. Change the world. We're here to change the world by discipling people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to rest in the authority and power of Christ and his grace. Change us that we might change those around us to transform moments with the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying and for causing people to pray because that's why we're Christians now. That's why we became workers, because people prayed for us. And now we get the opportunity to pray for others. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for giving us authority. We are so weak and unfaithful so often, and yet you give us your authority. And we praise you that you sent us to disciple. Thank you for those who have discipled us. We pray that we would faithfully disciple others. In Jesus' name, amen.